Whenever I lose something, whether it's a quarter or a disc or, or my wedding band, yep, thank you, April, uh, I'm always reminded that God knows exactly where it is, even if he doesn't allow me to find it. Uh, Leanne and I received a set of knives as a wedding present, uh, but while we were, lived in Michigan, we somehow lost the paring knife. Uh, it just plagued us forever. Plagues me to this day. I still wouldn't be surprised if somewhere, some, it's not going to happen, but if we just opened something, we've moved like twice since then, three times since then, and I mean, it's gone, but I just like, I wonder where that paring knife is. So it probably was thrown away, and I suppose that we'll never know the truth, but God knows exactly where, probably in a landfill, uh, that paring knife is. I was struck this week by the story of King Tut. We know King Tut right? For 3,000 years, okay, just let that sink in. 3,000 years under the sand, the young Egyptian king lay buried in his tomb surrounded by treasures. It's forgotten, undiscovered, uh, hidden, while empires rose and fell around the world. Basically, all of recorded history that we know about until Howard Carter found that tomb in 1922. His archaeological team did not uh, create King Tut's tomb. They did not bring his treasures into existence. They merely brought into light what had been hidden in darkness. In other words, uh, through their work, a mystery was revealed. In our passage today, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 to 27, Paul is going to talk about a message to be shared, a mystery to be revealed, and a marvel to be embraced. I'm going to read verses 24 to 27 uh, to continue to follow Paul's flow of thought, which actually continues into verses 28 and 29, and let's be honest, the whole letter, uh, but we're just going to focus in on verses 25 to 27, which is three whole verses. I hope you don't get whiplash from that, that speed. Colossians chapter 1, read verse 24 to 27. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See this passage beginning with this idea of a message, excuse me, a message to be shared. Paul speaks of himself as, as a steward or having received a stewardship. This is his ministry of being an apostle. Not the first time that he's talked about himself, even in this book. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, he sees himself as a fellow servant of Epaphras, with Epaphras, excuse me. In chapter 1, verse 23, uh, Paul described himself as a minister or a servant of the gospel, the gospel that they had heard, uh, which had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and he says, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That ministry of the gospel or his, his, uh, the way that he's bound as a servant to the gospel is seen clearly by his suffering for the gospel in verse 24, as we talked about last week. Now he goes on to say in verse 25, 
that not only is he a minister of the gospel, but he is also a minister of the church. Perhaps we could say for the church. Uh, these are not separate titles or ministries. From his apostleship to his, his fellow servanthood, his ministering uh, on behalf of Christ, on behalf of the gospel, and on behalf of the church, they're all speaking to the same reality of what Paul had been called to. Paul's life was one of serving God's people by proclaiming the gospel to them. But this was not his own idea. Uh, he did not put himself up to that, far from it, if we know his story. He had been called by God to this ministry. He didn't say, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll promote Jesus around the entire world. Uh, he was trying to destroy that very message. And even in his conversion, he wasn't setting himself up as leading some new movement. He was appointed to that. He had been called by God to this ministry, appointed by Christ himself to serve Christ's people in these ways. And more than that, Paul had been entrusted with a stewardship, he calls it here in verse 25, a stewardship that was from God, given to him, not for himself, but for the Colossian believers, even though he had never met them, did not plant this church. But not only for the Colossian believers, a stewardship from God on behalf of the Roman believers, on behalf of the Corinthian believers, the Galatian believers, the Ephesian believers, the Philippian believers, and so on. Not really even, I would say, to the Hurricane believers, that he had a stewardship from God on our behalf as well. All of these, including us, these were God's people. They were God's household. And this idea of stewardship has to do with a household management. That's another way that this word is used. God had entrusted the care of his household to stewards, to household managers. A steward has responsibility to take care of property, but he does not own that property. Uh, he may have complete control over that property, but it's still not his. Think of Joseph. Right? What had Potiphar not given Joseph to oversee as a steward? He ruled over everything, but none of it was his. It was all Potiphar's. This steward does not own the home, does not own the fields. It's not his wife. It's not his children. They belong to his master. Yet the steward has been given authority to carry out his master's will in his master's absence, in his master's way during that absence. Implied in stewardship is not just the responsibility of a task, uh, but certain, the, the certainty of accountability. We read about that um, as Jesus uses steward-type ideas as uh, accountability to the Lord. The steward will answer to his master. That's the other side of that responsibility. That's is the accountability side, right? And Paul's responsibility for which he would give account, we see in this verse, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to, here, here's what the stewardship was, to make the word of God fully known. This phrase has actually been translated a few different ways, even in just some of our, our modern translations. Uh, no, not there yet. Uh, the, new, the New International Version, the NIV says, to present to you the word of God in its fullness the New American Standard, to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Those have some different nuances. The New Living Translation, proclaiming his entire message to you. Uh, the New King James, to fulfill the word of God. We could take this phrase, it's kind of important, right? What was Paul's ministry? What was his stewardship? What had God called him and entrusted to him to do for his people? Uh, this could be a matter of uh, Paul was to preach the whole message, not just part of the word of God. My, my first reading of this, to make the word of God fully known, uh, kind of makes me lean toward that. Maybe this is what this is saying. 
right? It's not just pick and choose what he wanted to say, but to preach the whole word of God, to make it fully known to them. Perhaps this has to do with preaching the whole message. Um, or it could be that Paul was to preach the message to the whole world, not just to some people. That to, to complete this, to make the word of God fully known, not, didn't have as much to do with the message as it had to do with the audience. He was supposed to preach this uh, to the nations, which we do see Paul doing. There's another way that we could think about this, which has to do with fulfilling God's plan, to, to bring to fulfillment God's word or God's promises, his purposes among the nations, right? To fulfill God's word, as in to be part of bringing it to fulfillment. What had God said would take place? What was God doing? And Paul's saying, I have a stewardship from God to be part of that to complete God's word, to fulfill it in that way. Uh, it can be hard to tell exactly which element of these Paul was emphasizing, and part of that is because all of them were true. It's like, hey, Paul, were you, were you emphasizing that you wanted to preach the, the whole counsel of God? He was like, yes. Well, did you want to do that to, or, or did you want to do that to all people? Yes. Uh, well, was that, or really, was it just because you wanted to be part of the fulfillment of God's plan? Yes, like, I don't understand your questions. Those are, those are all true. Paul understood his mission to be proclaiming all of the word to all of the world in order to fulfill all of God's plan. He saw himself, a number of passages we could see, uh, as, as part of that. And interestingly, in Paul's life, he both sees himself as fulfilling his part of the mission, like I preached to the whole world. And if you were like, well, Paul, what about these countries that you never went to? It's just like, right, but I... But the message came out, and it's, it's spreading from that. I did my part in doing the, I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of all people, as a matter of fact, because I fully preached the whole word to the whole world, fulfilling God's plan. He both fulfilled his part of this mission and recognized that the mission was ongoing, calling Timothy to go and continue to serve, Titus to go on and continue to serve, all of God's people to do that. And indeed, this mission is ongoing, all of the word must be preached to all of the world to fulfill all of God's purposes. Go to the words that Jesus said. We could go to the, the, the wonderful promises in Revelation about this. The gospel must be preached and is going to be preached and the fruit of all of that, of the nations gathering together. And this mantle that Paul had, preaching the whole word to the whole world to fulfill God's purposes, that mantle has fallen to us. And that responsibility is now ours, not just ours here at Risen King, ours as a church globally, but not just not our part here at Risen King. You know, may God open our eyes to, to this calling, the f making the word of God fully known, calling to strengthen us to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations, even those people that we didn't know existed until, what, about 10 minutes ago? 450,000 people who don't know Jesus. The word of God in its entirety preached to them to fulfill God's purposes. Paul gets more specific as to his, his stewardship here. This message to be shared, to make the word of God fully known, he elaborates a little bit on what this message is. It was also, the message to be shared was also a mystery to be revealed. Which, what is a mystery? You guys like reading mysteries? Agatha Christie, right? Mysteries. Who did it? You'll never guess. We read one. I probably used this as an illustration before. We read one book. 
Or is this kind of like, oh, maybe it's this person with this balloon used to somehow carry the murder weapon and kill this other person. And it's, since it's not visual and you just have to try to remember every, it was this guy and you, he knew it by the mustache. Do you remember that? Just like the mustache guy, like he was in for five seconds and somehow he's the murderer, right? Mystery is like, oh, I never would have guessed that. When we think about a mystery, we need to start off with this, this understanding. We need to remember the eternal plan of God because everything that happens originates with God. Everything that happens originates with God. He is sovereign over all of history and he's ordained everything. Nothing happens except through him and by his will, his will of decree. And more than just his permission, we're talking about God's eternal plan. As Paul would exclaim in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I assume it doesn't come as a shock when I say to you that you don't know everything that God is doing in the universe. What? Obviously not. I mean, there's no way that our finite, limited brains could ever comprehend the plans and workings of our infinite, limitless God. We don't know all that God has done in us and for us today, and we've only been up for a few hours. And if we try to, to multiply that times of what, 100 maybe people here, and the interactions that what God's doing in my life with what God's doing in your life, and how what God's doing in your life impacts what God is doing in my life, and then we multiply that out into our, our neighbors, we multiply that into our nation across the entire world, across time. And even if we knew just a little bit of that externally, then there's all the, the things that are just behind the scenes. What God is doing is just staggering to the imagination. You start to try to make connections and think about it, and your, your brain starts to hurt because it's, it's limited. There's no way that we can do that. But more than just not being able to come to a comprehension of it because he is limitless and we are limited, more than that, we actually never know anything that God is doing if he does not reveal it to us himself. His ways are actually hidden from us. It's not just we could piece it together if we had enough time. Like we actually lack the capacity because those things are veiled. They are hidden from us. But throughout scripture, we see God revealing things. We see an unfolding plan that God has and an unfolding plan that God is accomplishing. The elements of this plan that God does reveal are often, they're often first revealed to one individual or to a small group, and then they are recorded for us to see. Okay, so God has an eternal plan hidden from everybody. We would never know about it unless God revealed it to us. But God doesn't just reveal it to everybody all at once, okay? He starts off sometimes with one person or one small group. And from that, we see those plans recorded in scripture. Then they are presented to the world. Genesis chapter three, spoken to, to in Adam and Eve's hearing to the serpent, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This is the first aspect of this promise that starts to unfold, right? When we think it should all be done, God says, actually, there's something more that's taking place. Something you never would have expected, never would have known about, but God reveals it. Genesis chapter 12, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed by God through Abraham. None of those other nations knew about that. They didn't know about Abraham. They had rejected the knowledge of God himself. They had no idea that they needed blessing from the Lord, yet there was a blessing promised to them. Revealed small, 
but a plan that was inevitable and moving. And then we, we fast forward 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David's throne would be established forever. It says this to David. David reveals that to God's people, recorded in God's word, passed on through the generations to us. Always God's plan, God's eternal plan. However, throughout the Old Testament, God did not reveal his whole plan of redemption to everyone, not even to his prophets. Some things were concealed, things, this mystery hidden for ages and generations. These concealed things, <coughs> excuse me, these concealed things did not tell Abraham, did not tell David, did not tell the prophets, did not tell anyone. Things that God has planned that are hidden are called mysteries throughout Scripture. Now, Daniel chapter 2 gives us an example of this. As remember the stories that we read about in Daniel? Daniel chapter 2, uh, God sends a dream about the future to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, right? the emperor of this Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by this dream. He recognizes this is more than just, like I had some weird dream. I don't remember what it was. Leanne had a weird dream about somebody in our family being sick. This is like, what did that mean? Honestly, probably nothing. But Nebuchadnezzar, I don't think every dream that he was just kind of like, I'm going to kill all my wise men if they can't figure this one out. Right? But that's what happens here. It's like, I've got, I had a really crazy dream. I want you guys to tell, tell me what it means. And they're like, well, tell us what the dream was. He's like, no, I don't trust you, scoundrels. That's my own subtext on that. You tell me the dream and you tell me the interpretation. They're like, nobody's ever asked us to do that. You've never asked us. Nobody's ever asked anybody to do that. How are we supposed to do that? He's like, well, do it or I'm going to kill you. It's like, well, then I guess we're going to die. <laughs> but then in steps Daniel, who comes before the king, and this is the conversation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, his, his Babylonian name. <coughs> Excuse me. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he, God, has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel goes on to tell the king his dream and its interpretation, which would have to do with the rise and fall of world empires that would define human history moving forward. See, God had planned that. God had ordained that, all of it, from eternity past, but it had been a mystery. Everything just seemed to be unfolding according to the whims of kings and generals and leaders. But it wasn't. It was actually God's plan. And then that involved not just the Babylonian Empire being in power and then falling, the Medo-Persian Empire following that, the Greek Empire coming, the Roman Empire rising and falling, and then spreading into what I think is a, a picture of Western civilization. All of this had been planned from eternity, but it had been a mystery, hidden from everyone until God chose to reveal it to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. The eternal plan of God, hidden from everyone. This is this aspect as we build a definition of what a mystery is. In Colossians 1.26, Paul speaks of another of God's mysteries, part of his eternal plan that had been hidden from ages or for ages and generations. This could be just talking about it's like for a long time and from everybody, ages, long time. It's just like, oh, it's been an age since I was able to preach in front of you guys. No, it's been seven days, not an age, right? But eons or ages, hundreds, thousands of years, all of human history and generation after generation of God's people. But now that which had been God's plan, hidden from everyone, was revealed in God's time, revealed to, do you see? 
revealed to his saints. God's plan was being unfolded before his new covenant people, those whom he had chosen and called to follow Christ. At first, he revealed this to his apostles, who then proclaimed it and shared it broadly across the Roman Empire in the preaching of the gospel. A mystery, the eternal plan of God, hidden from everyone, but then revealed in God's time. And here, it's revealed to his saints. How is this mystery described? To them, to these saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery is described as being something that would be great among the Gentiles. And one of these revealed mysteries, the eternal plan of God, hidden from everyone, revealed in God's time, was that God's redemptive work in Christ would include Gentiles, non-Israelites. But that doesn't really go far enough as an explanation. We could go through, I mean, Abraham was a Gentile until he wasn't. Everybody's a Gentile until the Jewish people were established. But even at that point, you still see God intervening and redeeming different people, like Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile, yet welcomed into the redemptive plan of God. Before her, Rahab, been a Gentile, but welcomed into the redemptive plan of God. The difference following the earthly ministry of Christ was that the Gentiles could come to God as Gentiles. See, Ruth became Jewish. Rahab was brought into the old covenant Israelite people of God and then welcomed into that circle of redemption. But that's no longer the case. They could come as Gentiles, not as Gentile converts to a Jewish faith. This is the controversies that we read about both in Acts and in Galatians and in other places. But things like circumcision and sacrifices at the temple, mosaic food laws, purity rituals, they, weren't, they no longer mattered. It wasn't, you know, convert this way and then follow Christ. It was like, no, it's not a two-step process. It's one step. It's just faith in Jesus. Roman, Chinese, Indian, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Paul would, would is a very, very similar passage. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. Paul, Paul goes into this even deeper in Ephesians. I'm not going to do that because I'm not preaching Ephesians. I'm preaching Colossians. But in Ephesians, Paul uses temple imagery, walls that are dividing Jewish people from Gentile people, distancing them from God. And the imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians is Christ coming in and tearing down the wall that divided Jews from Gentiles, making them both one body, and that one body being redeemed by his blood shed on the cross. Right? So it's not, okay, there's Jewish Christians, there are Gentile Christians. It's like, tear down the wall, there's just Christians. The Gentiles don't need to become Jewish, Jewish don't need to become Gentiles, just as they are. God's eternal plan, formerly concealed, now fully revealed, was full Gentile inclusion in the church. In Acts chapter 10, we see the apostle Peter. He learns this with respect to a Roman centurion named Cornelius. You know, to, the, to, to some people, it's like Paul's conversion might be really shocking because he hated Jesus. And then to other people, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, that might be even more shocking. It's like, how could God ever show mercy to a person like that? Position of authority in this Gentile Roman world. 
Also, though, Paul was called by Christ not just to be an apostle, but an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. God's work would not just include Gentiles, though. As we see starting in the New Testament, with the rejection of the Jews, with, with, Paul, with the focus like an Acts onto Paul's ministry, what we see starting in the New Testament and continuing to the present day is that God's work was great among the Gentiles. This mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints is that to, to the saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles was his plan of redemption. The Gentiles aren't just included on the outskirts. Gentiles have actually become the primary focus of the work of the gospel in the world. Anybody want to say amen to that? Because as far as I know, you aren't Jewish. And <laughs> neither am I. So we can, we, can, we, can have, <laughs> we can think like, oh, it's good for the gospel to go to those Gentiles. What do you mean those Gentiles? <laughs> Like Hurricane West Virginia and the United States, solid Gentile territory. And yet God has shown how great, even to us, halfway around the world, is the work of the gospel. Great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery of of full Gentile inclusion in the church, Paul further describes with these words, riches and glory. Riches, God has dealt bountifully with sinners. He's not a cheapskate with those type of things. He doesn't hold back. He lavishes sinners, even Gentile sinners, those really bad ones. Again, like us. He's lavished his gracious favor, boundless mercy and covenant faithfulness on us a people who were far off, Paul says, but now have been brought near. Describes this work with riches. He says the riches of the glory. Maybe it's glorious riches. Maybe it's the riches of the glory. We think of glory, though. We think God's work as a display of his character and attributes. And we try to summarize those things. Maybe we want to summarize those as like all of who God is. This is this holiness I think the brightness of his character we see reflected as glory. The shine, if, if, it, if it could enter and be seen in the physical universe, the closest we could get to is a blinding brightness of glory. And when we see God at work in creation, we see God at work in redemption, we marvel and we wonder at who he is and what he has done. Jaws dropped, minds blown. Whoa. Marveling. This marveling and wondering, this worshiping, worshiping, they are our proper responses to God's glory on display. May it never be that we're just like, oh yeah, God created everything. I know. Oh yeah, God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What else is there? What else is on TV? Oh, this the riches of the glory of this mystery. God displayed, God displayed the glory of his grace for ages and for generations by offering gospel mercy to the undeserving Jewish people. Never once did they deserve it. God was displaying mercy and riches and glory in saving Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And all those things that he did. Yet now we learn 
that that which seemed overwhelming when we read it was actually only a small, limited outpouring of his glorious redemption. See, we thought it was a waterfall. It turns out it was just a trickle. But now he's taking the lid off and he's just pouring it out. The riches of the glory of this, a, a massive flow of the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul says there is a message to be shared and a mystery to be revealed. But what is that message, Paul? And what is that mystery? How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery. This is the message. This is the word of God. And he wanted to proclaim all of the word to all of the world to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan. It's to show even to the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a marvel to be embraced. And we think, we think of, there's, there's another truth, and hopefully we think about, which is uh, we are in Christ. That's, that's the union that we have with Christ, that his benefits, his righteousness, are ours, our guilt, or his. We are in Christ. But a truth that's not spoken about as much in Scripture is that Christ is in us. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Now, how does he do this? Right? Because Christ uh, is also, he's in heaven, right? Seated at the right hand of God. Uh, that's, that's spoken of, that's actually seen in different passages. And yet, Christ dwells within us. He, he himself said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to be with you. Not only am I going to be with you, I'm going to be in you. Christ is in us, even while his physical presence, because he, divine and human nature, that his human nature dwells in heaven, but Jesus Christ is in all believers by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our God is Trinity, or triunity, one God existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Godhead do not act independently of one another. That wouldn't be unity. That would make him ununified. This is why we can say Christ in you also means the Holy Spirit in you. We refer to this again as this indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer. Now, just to be honest, at first glance, this may sound weird. It may kind of sound like possession. Right? Are we possessed by the Holy Spirit. Possession where another being overrides your mind and your will and your body so that they are acting instead of you. Read this week with my challenge class, we read about the demoniacs at um, the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes or uh, whatever that place was called. Those people were not stripping themselves. They were not ripping their own chains. They were not cutting themselves or attacking people. It was the demons, legion, possessing them, overriding their mind and will and body to act through them. Is that what is happening with the Holy Spirit? No. The indwelling of the Spirit is not possession. God's work in us is not an overriding of our will. It is the transformation of our will. He changes us. Right? Now, this is not a discussion about, like, are we saved because we're willing? It's like, well, there's two answers to that. One um, does not take into consideration 
right? Doesn't wait for you to be willing. He actually makes you willing. That's the same thing. He transforms our nature, brings us to life. And then yes, we do willingly respond to the gospel. Like no one is dragged kicking and screaming into heaven, right? The blindness is removed, scales pulled from their eyes, veil torn away, see the glory of Christ, the reality of sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, the truth of his resurrection from God's word. And we're like, yes, I want that. It's actually a different sermon, but... By God's grace, our old nature, corrupted by sin, set on its own destruction, is replaced by a new nature, a new heart. This is an act of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this initial act of it, because indwelling actually begins or began, indwelling began God's work in us. See, without Christ, we are spiritually dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2. And a spiritually dead person cannot respond to God's offer of the gospel. Cannot. And he cannot believe. She cannot repent. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But by God, the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, we are made alive. We are given a new spiritual life. That is a life from the Spirit that is from God's Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Do you remember that story? I mean, so often we only memorize one verse out of it. <laughs> memorize more verses out of it. Not just for God so loved the world that he, etc. That's true, but the verses around that are really important as well. Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be, <clears throat> he said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You need to be born not the will of man. This isn't your own doing. It's not something by your human father. You need to be born by the Spirit. The spiritual life does not exist apart from or outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. You are not alive apart from God's work in you. But Christ is in you, so you are alive. Christ is in you. Now, that's a marvelous truth, isn't it? That you are not dead in your sins anymore. You have been made alive. And Christ, by his Holy Spirit, does not just begin God's work and then leave us alone to fend for ourselves. I think that's like a default position of Christians. Like, we need a little, you know, depending on how much of God's help you think you need. Like at salvation, some people are like, well, I need a little bit of help. No, no. Oh, I need a lot of help. Closer. I need all the help. Okay, got it. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. But then, then I start this sanctification. And, he, and God just leaves this, this little baby newly alive, just sort of leaves it there to kind of figure things out on its own. And then checks back in after 50, 60, 70 years and tries to see, well, it's like, why didn't you do what I told you? Like, I think that's the default position that we have, but it's not true. It's not true. I mean, what, what kind of a parent would do that? God is our father, brings us to life as spiritual babes, and then does what? Leads us into maturity through caring for us by his spirit. God does not leave us alone. The spirit does not leave us alone. He, he continues God's work in us. Indwelling began God's work in us. Indwelling continues God's work in us. We are not helpless and weak until God works in us. We are helpless and weak unless God works in us. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. 
neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is by the Holy Spirit that we abide in Christ, and Christ by his Holy Spirit abides in us. This is how our sanctification is possible. So that's what we're talking about is this continuing work of indwelling in us is sanctification. How are we transformed into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord? We walk in the Spirit in order to not fulfill the desires of our sinful natures, as Paul talks about in Galatians. We live by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He convinces us of truth, convicts us of sin, and empowers us to put to death the sinful deeds of our bodies. You don't, you don't convince yourself of truth, you don't convict yourself of sin, and you don't, on your own power, put to death the deeds of the body. That is the Holy Spirit in you. So we just kind of sit back and just wait for it to happen. Without me, you can do nothing. But what would the flip side of that be, right? With me, you can do everything that I've called you to do. Battling sin can seem impossible. Have you you caught that? If you haven't caught that, you might not be battling sin. But battling sin can seem impossible. But did you know that it isn't? Whatever sin maybe in your mind right now, that you are struggling with, battling that is not impossible. God's grace is sufficient for every trial. His omnipotent strength, not lots of strength, all strength, all powerful strength. His omnipotent strength is available to you to escape from every temptation. A believer in Jesus Christ never has to sin. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, for us, to do that which is pleasing in his sight. But the battle is real. The battle is hard. Our enemies are conniving and diabolical, literally. And we often choose sin instead of righteousness. Why did you get angry this week? Why did you lust? Why did you blaspheme? Why did you steal? Why did you hate? Why did you covet? Because you lived according to your own strength instead of by God's strength. You chose what was wise in your own eyes instead of living according to God's wisdom. See, we ignore the Holy Spirit's guidance. We try to depend on our own strength instead of his. And for this, not just the sin, but for all of this, we must repent. Okay, not just the sin but for the desire of independence from God in battling sin, we must repent. For wanting to please God on our own, by ourselves, to get the credit, that's what it is. I, this, okay, not even just you. Maybe this is just me. It's not. Maybe this is just me. I want the credit before God for doing what is right. Desperate to prove myself. Right? The immature child. No, no, dad, no, don't hold my hand. Don't help me. I can do this. 
falls. The righteous one falls seven times, rises again. Why? Because the Lord is able to keep us from stumbling and from staying down. But we want independence. Jesus did not live independently. Look at his temptations. The Father says, I depend on the Spirit for this. I will not act independently of God. I will not do my own thing. But that's what we want. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit says, this is kind of like, look, you can't on your own. And here's the glorious truth. Riches of the glory of the mystery. You don't have to try on your own, which you can't do, because Christ is in you. You are utterly impotent on your own, helpless entirely. But the Holy Spirit in you is omnipotent. I don't like electric lawn appliances. They drive me nuts. Either the batteries wear out, or I forgot to charge them last time, or I can just charge themselves. Or I've got like a 100-foot extension cord, and it always gets tangled, or it gets unplugged, or we're going to cut through it with the weed whacker. And then some of them, the ones that I've used, you know, they don't, they just sort of gradually wear out, right? Just trying to get a little bit further, but gas, right? Love gas appliances. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, oh, it ran out of gas. And it's at 100% until it's at 0%. Love gas appliances. If you want to finish your whole job, make sure to fill up the tank first. Simple, Right? It's so easy to think of our need for spiritual strength in our daily lives like a gas tank. That's what I want. Fill up my tank, let me run on my own. Fill it up weekly on Sundays. Peter preaches forever. That's got to be enough. No, 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 not weekly, but, but daily. Daily in my devotional time, I'm going to fill up my tank and I'm going to run until I'm empty. But our souls don't run on fuel like that. Right? So what I like in lawn appliances and I want in spiritual things, I'm wrong. We aren't powered by a fuel tank. We are powered by connection to a power source. We have to be intentionally and constantly plugged in. Weird. Just follow the metaphor. Plugged into Christ by the Holy Spirit. But there's no limited battery involved, and there, there are no long extension cords. The power source that we depend on dwells inside of us. It is God's Holy Spirit. So listen, Christian, Christ is in you. Christ is in you right now and always. You are not alone in this sinful world when you struggle in trials or when you face temptations. This is, this is a marvel. Christ in you always, forever. Not, not part of it. You don't get part of the spirit, right? God's not divided, not, not some sort of dilution, right? All of Christ through his spirit is in you. So marvel at this truth and embrace your endless need and his endless supply of grace. Matter of fact, there's more grace than you have need. Christ in us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that began God's work in us, it continues God's work in us, and it also will complete God's work in us.
indwelling, will complete God's work in us. This is the hope of glory. So, so far, it's only been part of the phrase, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says in verse 27. This is the, this glory, this is the assurance, the guaranteeing of our receiving, the guarantee of our receiving, experiencing, and enjoying what God has promised to us. What God has promised you will receive, and what he describes is glory. Because Christ is in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, began his work, continues his work, we can be absolutely certain of the glory that we will know in the future. Absolutely certain of it. Paul could be using glory here in a broad sense. Because of Christ, our hope is glorious. He could also be drawing our attention to various elements of glory that we know await for us. First, Christ's glory in the future Christ's glory will be fully, finally, and forever revealed. We will see the God-man, our Savior, our Lord, our God, as he truly is, radiant with the glory of God in true and perfect humanity. The Apostle John communicated a vision of Jesus in his glory to us in Revelation 1. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What? From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Indeed, Jesus described his second coming with these words. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There's a hope of glory to be revealed, the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have a sure and certain hope of that, but that's not all. There's a glorious person, but we also most assuredly have the hope of a glorious home to anticipate. The glorious person, but the glorious home, earth and heaven in their current state under God's curse, still reflects his glory. The heavens still declare the glory of God, even though they're cursed. The skies still display the work of his hands. How much more glorious will the new heaven and the new earth be, the place where only righteousness will dwell and no sin will ever enter? A place specially prepared for us as a bride by our bridegroom, Jesus. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He created all things. He died for our salvation. Do you think the place that he prepared is going to be stingy or second rate? Like I had no money in trying to prepare a place to bring Leanne home to when we were first married. Jesus, limitless resources. And he's not drawing from anything else. Like he creates the resources. You know, many husbands are stereotypically inept at design. Jesus, our Lord, our husband, created all things in heaven and earth. He knows beauty and glory, for he created them in the first place. So the place that he cre is creating for us, the hope of glory that we have in that place is in a sense as, as glorious as he is glorious because it is reflecting his glory. And we can read about what this glorious place looks like, how it compares to the things of earth. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like in Revelation 21 and 22. 
the glory of Christ, the glory of heaven are both things that we hope for. It's still not all. Christ in you, the hope of glory, I think points most specifically to our own glory, what we call our glorification. Not just the glory of Christ. We dwell with a glorious Savior. We dwell in a glorious place, but we will dwell ourselves being glorious. We will be glorified as Christ has been glorified. Whoa, what? 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 2 Corinthians 5 is also helpful in thinking about this passage from Colossians. Listen to what Paul explains about our lives now and about our eternal lives then. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, your body, that's what he's talking about. All you have right now is a tent. The tent gets tears when your dog tries to jump out at you. Rain can go through condensation, right? It's fun to stay in a tent for a little bit. Nobody really wants to permanently live in a tent. Maybe like a single guy in 20s. I don't know. Maybe somebody. But we know that if the, earth, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building. That's the opposite. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent, we groan, longing, hoping, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked or unclothed, right? We're in a tent. We leave the tent when we die, waiting for the home that we will enter into, the hope of the resurrection. While we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Imagine you've received a letter from a forgotten great uncle. If he's forgotten, you didn't remember you had him. That's what forgotten means. It turns out he's an, some eccentric billionaire who remembers you from a family reunion when you were 18 months old. You gurgled cutely or something like that. And he's decided to extend his generosity to you. He's established a trust fund in your name. You're to be the recipient of $10 million a year for the rest of your life and then inheritor of his entire estate when he dies. And that letter would be so astonishing, it would be so astounding, be so amazing, that you'd be like, that's too good to be true. That cousin that I do remember, he put me up to this. But when the first check arrived in your name and you took it to the bank and they deposited it in your account and didn't send you to jail for fraud, you'd probably start to believe it, right? (laughs) This story is true. Why would you start to believe it? Because that first check was a guarantee or a down payment or the first installment of your massive inheritance. With that first check in hand, you know that you are guaranteed to receive all that was promised to you. Those checks are going to continue coming. And that inheritance will be yours. And you have proof of it in hand. With that guarantee, that down payment, that first installment, the indwelling 
of the Holy Spirit in us is God's guarantee of our glorious eternal inheritance as God's children. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's where we are headed, where we will see Christ in all of his glory. It's like, kind of like, why would he do all this if those promises aren't true? It's like, it doesn't make sense. Plus, even if it did, it doesn't matter about sense, right? Because God's word is true. But we have that truth as a certainty because the Holy Spirit is in us, right? He began God's work in us. He's continuing God's work in us. He's going to bring to completion God's work in us. And this is, this is just a little bit. So we, we can know God, we can know Christ to the point of being willing to suffer for the gospel like we talked about last week. Paul would be like, stone me, shipwreck me, crucify me, behead me. I don't care. if it, It's going to help me know Jesus more. And all of that was driven just by the fact that he had Christ in him by the Holy Spirit. And that's just the, that's just the beginning. Christ in you is the hope of glory that is to come. We sinners, formerly alienated, estranged from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, we sinners have not only been reconciled to him in his body of flesh by his death, we also have the hope of being presented before him holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, glorified as he is glorified. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a marvel that we must embrace. It is a mystery that has been revealed, curtain pulled back, unwrapped, laid out in front of us. And it is a message that must be shared, both with our neighbors and with the nations, that God's purpose would be fulfilled all of the word to all of the world to fulfill all of God's purposes. Father, thank you for the glorious, rich, great truth that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are undeserving on every level. You are, you are so entirely gracious to us. Help us to embrace the marvel of this, to depend on the Spirit, to be uh, joyful by your Spirit, for your Spirit, and to live that way anticipating and longing for the glory that is to be revealed, uh, which we have just a taste of. May we taste and see that the Lord is good, knowing in the future we'll have just the full enjoyment and experience of that. Uh, that hope transforms us. Paul's talked about that. Please transform us by this hope. And increase our hope. Increase our joy, our love for Christ, even as we come to the table to, to take of his body and his blood, which were broken and poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Uh, we are coming to the table at this point. Um, if Christ is in you, your faith in his life and death and resurrection, um, then this table is for you. So as Christ invites you to come to partake of these things, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't, kind of, if none of this makes sense or is any interest to you, I um, ask you to stay in your seat. Um, these are for those who have embraced Christ, their need of Christ. You have a need of Christ, whether you know it or not, right? You are spiritually dead or spiritually empty. You cannot please God on your own. 
But what the table proclaims to us in broken pieces of bread and small cups of red grape juice, that Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, his body was broken on the cross. His blood was poured out. He was a sacrifice. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You will taste of of Christ spiritually. But you can come then and worship and celebrate, taste of him, and we say taste of him spiritually in this. With gratitude, call Ken forward to come and serve the elements that uh, deacons will dismiss you by row. Come and receive the body and blood of the Lord from the hand of the one who serves it um, in place of Christ who offers it. Uh, return to your seat and we'll partake of these things together.